Just uh, if you were with us earlier this morning, we talked about Paul's journey up to Pisidian Antioch and to Iconium and to Lystra. No easy roads. I will go and let this journey be my home. That's Paul's testimony, isn't it? He lived on the road for the glory of God. What a, what a great song. Thanks, brother. I want to do uh, one more administrative thing here because my wife's not with me. You have to smile. Okay? <laughs> okay. And I forgot my wide angle, so I might have to take a few shots. Okay, I'll do this way. Well, what does it go? Go, on, go ye into all the world and take pictures, right? <laughs> hey, well, look, you know, you're, you know, you're laughing, but you, when you all come to Albania, you're going to be taking pictures of us, right? <laughs> so I'll take pictures of you. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, it's been a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for your Texas Christian hospitality. Ken, thanks for inviting us. To George and Jackie, thanks for your wonderful hospitality. This has been excellent. Normally, when we're on the road, we actually prefer to stay in hotels because we're tired at the end of the day. And you, you know, when you're, you, you, then you got to go home and talk to somebody if you're, if you're staying with somebody. But it has been really wonderful being with the Gilofs. It has just been blessing after blessing. What a wonderful family. Thank you for your hospitality. And uh, if we ever come back, just we don't we don't want to stay in the Del Lago. We don't want to stay anywhere except with the Elofs. So. <laughs> it's been it's been a wonderful time. We've prayed for you over the years. Uh, it was a little over a year ago when uh, our families were together for the Shepherds Conference, and we had a chance to go to Disneyland together. And it was wonderful to get all of our children together because all of our kids are are, are less than one month apart in age. And, of course, we didn't plan that. It's just the way God had orchestrated. So we had wonderful fellowship, and I, re- I remember just walking around Disneyland. I can visualize where we- I'm a visual thinker. So I can visualize where we were, and Ken and I were talking about uh, the story of Lakeside Church. But now, being here, now I understand. Now I can see, and I can see what God's doing here. And this is a, this is a special work. I keep telling Ken how privileged he is. He's blessed of God to be the shepherd of this group. And, and, and I've started out uh, a couple of nights ago saying that, that uh, something you already know, that you're blessed to have such a pastor teacher. This is, this is, God's doing something here. And it's really exciting for us to just to see it and to play it, you know, to, to be able to minister among you just for a few days. We will leave and we will continue to pray for you and all that God will do in and through you here and abroad. If you're just joining us today... Uh, we've been studying the church in Antioch. I think it's probably up there, isn't it? And uh, this, uh, this has been a privilege for me to be able to teach these things with you all. I, I've only had a chance to teach these things to, uh, to our own church in Tirana. And we're still studying through the book of Acts. In fact, we, we are right, uh, we're right here. To, we're, we, we just finished the first missionary journey at our church in Albania. So this is all still fresh on my heart and mind. And so it's been a privilege for me to be able to share that with you as well. Um, when I started out on um, Friday, was it Friday, huh? Friday night, I started by telling you about the Moravian movement. 
the Moravians, who were the spiritual descendants of the early reformer John Huss of what's now the Czech Republic, and uh, their mighty influence around the world. The, the Moravians, who uh, within um, 50 years of sending out their first missionary, this group of 600, sent, had sent out 300 missionaries from their little group and supported them all. And I started out by sharing with them as, as a modern day, although they're 200 years ago, the Moravian movement still goes on, a more modern day illustration and example of this wonderful church in Antioch. This church in Antioch truly was a unique church, a special church uniquely or, uh, ordained by God and lives as an eternal testimony to what God can do through a group of people that are fully committed to him and that have as their ambition the extension of his kingdom. And, and they remain a testimony for us even today. So we've, we've gone through, if you've been with us, you know, we've, we've talked about the, the beginning of this church. We talked about its leadership. And then we talked about its first missionary endeavor, the, the first trip of Paul and Barnabas. What I want to do now as we wrap up this last session together is I'd like to review with you the key events in the book of Acts uh, related to the church in Antioch. And then I want to make some, some summary points. Now, I know some of this we've gone over already, but I know there are some serious Bible students here. And if, and if you're in that category, um, you can write down these passages I'm going to give you because I'm, I'm going to give you the, the key passages in the Bible related to Antioch. Now, you've already gone over them, but this is by way of summary. Um, first thing, the gospel arrived in Antioch. The first main event, the gospel arrived there, and we saw that in Acts chapter 11, Verses 19 to 21. You remember there was after the, the scattering, uh, the, persecu- the great persecution that arose after the stoning of Stephen, the scattering of the church, everyone scattered except the apostles and some men from Cyprus and Cyrene scattered and ended up in Antioch. And that's in Acts chapter 11, 19 to 21. Well, they went up there, they shared the message with Gentiles, and many believed. In fact, it was, it was such an event that these Gentiles had believed that word reached to, you know, to Jerusalem, there's something going on up in Antioch, we better go check it out to make sure this is really, you know, this is something of us. Go check them out. Do they have the right theology? Are they preaching the right Christ? Find out who they are, what's going on. And so they sent their dear brother Barnabas, they sent him up there, as we said, probably because he was also from Cyprus, and one of the founders was some man from Cyprus. We don't know who he was. So they sent Barnabas up there, and he went up there and found this group. And in Acts 11, uh, verse um, 22, 23, he, when he came and saw the grace of God, isn't that a wonderful way to explain it? When he saw the church, what is that a testimony of? It's the grace of God. When he saw the grace of God... He was glad, full of joy, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's the kind of man Barnabas was, an encourager, an exhorter. Keep on going. You've started well. Keep going. And he exhorted them. He wasn't a teacher, however, not a teacher like Paul. And we don't know how long he spent with them, but he he realized he needed some more help. So he went and he, he took leave of them, went down to Tarsus, wasn't so far away, went down to Tarsus to seek after Saul, because they called him Saul still at that point. 
And verses 22 to 26 explain, they went down, found Saul, brought him back up. Verse 26 says, when he found him, he brought him up to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. They, they took him deep. This is, a, this is a hungry group, probably much like the Bereans that, that came along later that searched the scriptures. They wanted to know the truth. They had the greatest encourager in the history of the church, Barnabas, and the greatest teacher in the history of the church, Paul. What a combination, a one-two punch. If Paul got too heavy, Barnabas came along and said, hey, come on, we just, just keep pressing on. You can do it. God's with you. you know? and, uh, if, if, and if Barnabas got too, too light, Paul came right along and said, Barnabas, we've got to go deeper. What a great combination. Then from uh, verses 27 to 30, we see this new young uh, group of believers had an opportunity to give and to give generously. There was a famine that was going to occur down in, in Judea. A prophet, Agabus, came and said, brothers, there's going to be a famine. We need some help. So they started collecting stuff and starting storing stuff up. And then they sent Barnabas and Saul down to Jerusalem, or rather up to Jerusalem with um, with the aid for the brothers in Judea. And then the famine came to pass, and this, this little church was able to serve the needs of the church in Judea. They were a giving church. Then we skip over chapter 12, because that's sort of um, Luke, an interlude of Luke, you know, to tell us what was going on at the same time down in Jerusalem. Then he gets to um, chapter 13. Well, at the end of chapter 12, Paul and Barnabas and Saul. It's very interesting. Um, these early, these early, um, in, these early uh, records of uh, Barnabas and Saul together always list, relate to Antioch, always list Barnabas first and Saul afterwards. And then after they go to Cyprus, which we talked about yesterday, from that point on, it's no longer Saul, it's Paul. And now from that point on, it's, it's Paul and Barnabas. Interesting, huh? Something happened. Maybe it's when he... Uh, when he did that miracle of, um, uh, with, that, with the false prophet Bar-Jesus, maybe at that point when he was really confirmed in front of everybody's eyes as a true apostle, um, not that there was any doubt, but as he was confirmed performing that miracle, maybe at that point on, you know, Luke's, Luke put his name first. I don't know. So uh, they, Barnabas and Saul, verse 25 of chapter 12, returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service and they brought with him John, whose name was Mark. <clears throat> then uh, we, we, we described, you know, who, who were these leaders in Antioch? And what we said was Antioch was a very cosmopolitan city, the third most important city in the Roman world at that time, uh, an inter- international city. And the team of elders that led this church was an international group as well, uh, a diverse group. Barnabas, Simeon, who was probably from somewhere in Africa, Lucius, who was from North Africa, Cyrene was North African, Menean, who was, a, who was of, no, of a noble background, and Saul. So this was an international group. These are, these are the five men that, that gave leadership to this incredible body of believers. The first missionaries were sent then in verses 3 and 4 of, of uh, chapter 13. And we, we talked all through that first missionary journey. It was ex- an exciting journey to see what God did as, as the first missionary team ever was thrust out, literally released for the work to which the Holy Spirit had called them. Then finally today, 
Uh, earlier today, we went all the way to the end of chapter 14, and, and it talks about how they, re- how they reported back in, in verse 27. The missionaries reported back. Paul and Barnabas came back after the end of the journey. They stayed for a long time with the believers, and they shared with them everything God had done, and they all rejoiced. This is before email. This is before newsletters. You know, the, 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 the turn of Antioch sent them out and didn't know what happened. They just continued in prayer. And so you can imagine when they arrived back in Antioch, the first believer that would have seen them would have rushed out, greeted them, and then ran off to tell all the rest to gather the body together so they could hear what happened among those they had committed, as, as Luke tells us, to the grace. Where did, what verse was that? Uh, verse 26, where they, had, they went back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work uh, that they had fulfilled. They went back uh, to those that had committed them, commended them to the grace of God, and they gave a report. Now, we didn't get to, uh, we, didn't, we, we, haven't, we haven't gone beyond that. I'm going to tell you a little bit more what happened with this, with this church. Uh, they went back, and then in, in Acts chapter 15, we, we know of this as the Jerusalem Council chapter. That's what my little subtitle says in my Bible. You see, there arose an issue. Look at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, the brothers in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem so to the apostles and to the elders about this question. This whole question... Uh, about really the, this, the question of the, the Judaizers about uh, needing to be circumcised, and you know, and it, 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 you know, it, this whole controversy became a controversy because the Antioch Church was Gentile. There, there, were, there were these brothers in Judea, in Jerusalem, that were saying, "No, we got to apply the law of Moses. You know, you, you're not a real believer unless you're circumcised." And so, when this word got to Antioch. You know, maybe, maybe the teaching has spread a bit, and maybe some of the apostles didn't think much of it because they're surrounded by Jews. But now, this is, this is a big issue because now we have a Gentile church. And so the, when, it, when it got to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas made a big deal about it and went back up to Jerusalem, and they, they had to form a council with the, with the elders and the apostles together to make a, dis, a statement on it. And they did make a statement on it, and the statement was, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be a believer. Antioch won, and because they were right. Um, so, so after that, after the Jerusalem council, they went up to Jerusalem, they dealt with it, they came. Then uh, Barnabas and Paul went back down. Look at Acts chapter 15. They went back down to Antioch, uh, verse 30 of 15, they gathered the congregation together. They, they delivered the letter. They, they, incur, they told them what, it, what was the answer. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement, especially the men. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. There were some others that came along and, and were teaching. They, they had more. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So Judas and Silas went back off. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. There are more teachers now. This church is churning out teachers. Praise the Lord, huh? It wasn't just those guys. It was, it was, it was, this is 2 Timothy 2, too, in action. 
So uh, then, then there's this interesting point, this very interesting uh, point in church history, verses 36 to 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's see how they are. They're ready to go back. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Barnabas, the encourager, the one that believes the best always, let's bring John. You know, he had a rough start, but let's, let's bring him again. But Paul thought best not to, take them, not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone up uh, with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. This is hard. Those are hard words. Those are hard words. Now, praise the Lord later, as we said earlier, praise the Lord later that because Barnabas stuck with John Mark, John Mark was then later useful to Paul, and Paul was asking for him. But at that point, Paul didn't get it. Remember, remember Paul, he's Paul's more, probably more black and white. And Barnabas is like, hey, brother, we got to love this guy. You know, just give him a second chance. Paul's like, no way, we, we, you know, we, we can't take the risk. And, and Barnabas stood with him, coached him along, and he became worthwhile for Paul, useful for Paul later. But they had a disagreement. So, Paul, so Barnabas took John with him and went to Cyprus. So they were, they were, they were doing the follow-up visits, but, but Barnabas went to follow up down Cyprus. He probably went to meet Sergius Paulus again. But Paul chose Silas. So Paul's got a new partner. Barnabas has a new partner. And, uh, and, and, they, and departed, having been commended by the brothers, once again, to the grace of the Lord. And Paul went throughout Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Back up, he went back up around into the area of Galatia again with a new partner. You know, it's very interesting. If, it seems to me that if, if uh, and who knows, you know, we're just looking back and speculating, but it seems to me that if Paul would have said, okay, let's take John Mark with him, then they still only have one team going out. Now they have two teams going out. It wasn't that they didn't love each other. They, weren't, they, just had, they just had a disagreement on this. And I'm sure they prayed for each other and wanted the best for each other as, as they parted. But it, 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 this was not a biblical issue. It was just a matter of choice. One's going to stay with them. The other, no, we'll, we'll just go on. And they, and, they, and they separated. But now we have two teams from Antioch going off to different places. And, and thus, the, uh, the ministry has expanded they probably would not have had two teams if it weren't for this sharp disagreement. So uh, they continued to teach them. They separated. Now they've got two teams out. This is the second missionary journey uh, of Paul from, from Antioch. And if you were to go on through the rest uh, of the next few chapters, you see he went back to Galatia. Then he went to Macedonia, which is the region uh, where Thessaloniki is today. And that's where Philippi is. And it's sort of, if you can picture Greece... Here's Greece. It, it's, it's up uh, in the northeastern section of Greece. That's where they went, to Philippi. And in Philippi, they led to Christ Lydia. The first convert in Europe was a woman named Lydia. From there, uh, they went to Philippi. Well, no, yeah, they went to Philippi. They were put in jail. Then they went to Thessalonica. Uh, where they were run out of the city. They went to Berea, where they found those that just loved the Scripture. They searched it. The, you know, there's so many Berean churches now, aren't there, because of these early Bereans. No one even knows where Berea is, but we named the church Berea, the Sunday school. The, this is the Berean class, you know, right? We're searching the Scripture because the, these noble people that search the Scripture. Then finally, in Acts 17, Paul makes it down to Athens, 
where he makes that phenomenal presentation before uh, the, the wisest men on the planet. And you'll note, he didn't talk to him, talk to them like he talked to Bar Jesus. He didn't condemn them for their idolatry. In fact, he, he capitalized on it. You men of Athens, I perceive you are very religious. And there they are sitting on their big chairs. Yes, we are. And they were very proud of that. Because they were. They were very proud of all their gods. We are religious people. Mm-hmm. And then he said, let me tell you, you know, when I was going through your city, I found this, this statue to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. And that, what a wonderful way to produce, introduce Christ. And some believed. Others thought he was crazy. You know, but many believed, says there in Acts 17. From there, he went just a, a short hop over to Corinth. And from Corinth, uh, made his way back to Antioch. And on the way back, he stopped very briefly in Ephesus. But he found such interest in Ephesus, he said, okay, I'll come back. But he reported back. Um, in Acts chapter 18, he reported back to Antioch after this second trip out. Didn't stay very long in Antioch, went back, regrouped, and then launched back to Ephesus. He kept his promise. Went back to Ephesus and stayed there two years. Ephesus is really cool, the story of Ephesus. And, and probably not for any reason you've ever, you've ever thought of, but for me, it's, 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 to me, it's, uh, there's an important reason. When he was in Ephesus, they went to the synagogue. They taught in the synagogue where they got kicked out. So he needed someplace else to teach. So he went to this school, it says in, in Acts 19, verses 9 and 10, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, 9 and 10. Uh, but, be, but when some uh, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, because they were called out those of the way, he withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, and, reason, and reasoning daily in the hall or the school of Tyrannus. They found an independent school to teach. Now, it has nothing to do with ty, 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 Tirana. Okay? But they found an independent school led by some guy named Tyrannus. We don't know anything about him, but he, he somehow had a, a, a place where they could teach from. Uh, and for it's just an independent, an independent building... And for two years, Paul reasoned and taught there. And look what Luke says. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't that fantastic? How did that work? I don't know. But he was in the school of Tyrannus. Maybe Tyrannus was a famous teacher. I don't know. But people from all over Asia were coming there to hear Paul teach. He didn't have to travel anymore. They just came to Ephesus. What, what, what's meaningful to us is is when we set up Lincoln, Lincoln has become an independent site. It's not a church. You know, six days a week, it's the Lincoln Center where people come to learn English and Spanish and, and computers. But on Sunday, it's our church. So we, we, we've, we've found over the years that uh, while it may be difficult to invite, you know, for someone to come out if we invite them to a Bible study or some church meeting, but if we say, hey, there's going to be a lecture at Lincoln, they turn out. And then we give some lecture on some topic, treat it spiritually, and they, and they listen, because they'll go to the neutral site. So there, in, there, he was in Ephesus. He remained there a few years, and then he retraced himself back. He went over to Greece again, Macedonia, Philippi, to Troas. Troas is where, is where the man Eutychus uh, fell out of the third-story window when Paul was preaching. Remember that? You ever heard the story of Eutychus? You know that? Um, 
was it the third story window? Yeah, third story, verse, it was chapter 20, verse 9. You, ever, you, you know the way they called him Eutychus? Because Eutychus too, if you'd have followed three, three flights to your, your death. <laughs> I don't have any more. I told the Theophilus joke in the Eutychus. That's all I have. <laughs> you know why they're laughing, Ken. These are Texans. You know, and, uh, <laughs> So the, the story of Eutychus, Paul preached until late into the night. Eutychus fell asleep, died, was revived. Then he went on to, he sailed over to uh, Miletus. He was really urgently trying to get back to Jerusalem. He wanted to get there in time with the Passover. And so he, he, rather than go up to Ephesus, he, he called the elders, come on down, I want to meet with you one more time. And so they went down and met with him Miletus. And that's that famous Acts chapter 20 passage where he pours out his heart as, as the shepherd, the one that, that uh, founded this church there, and he's talking to the elders and he's warning them. You know, this, this is the passage that puts chills up your spine as, as you think about what he said to them because he loved these people and served with them. Just, let's just read some of it from verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials and, what hap- and that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Um, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you public, in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and, our, and, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He, he, he continues to press on. The Spirit's telling him, Agabus tells him, because he presses on because of verse 24. And this is what it's about, because this is a missions conference. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of, his, of the grace of God. That's his testimony. And now behold, I know that none of you, that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of, of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all your flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Be on the alert. Therefore, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know how these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. 
They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That's probably what the scene would have been like if he had a chance to go back to Antioch one more time. He never made it back to Antioch. He went down to Jerusalem, and while in Jerusalem he preached and he was arrested. And you know the rest of the story. He has trial after trial, and then he makes his way up to Rome. The shipwreck in Malta and makes his way to Rome. And it's, it's through, it's through these, this period of life in Paul that, that he was writing to all the churches to encourage them because he had this continual burden on his heart for their spiritual well-being because he knew the wolves would come. So we, never, we, never, we don't return to Antioch again, but this is Antioch's man. And the Lord, the Lord used him mightily. You know... Uh, I, know, I know the Iron Men have gone through a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Phenomenal book. Interesting thing about that book is if you, if you turn to the back, you see 40 pages of lists from other pastors and theologians about what they think are the, the marks of a healthy church. It's, it's interesting to me. Mark Deaver gives his nine and you can't argue with any one of them. They're phenomenal. And then you get to the rest and you look at this guy's list and this guy's list and you say, wow, they're all right. Because there's no real list in the scripture of what are the marks of a healthy church. In fact, interestingly enough, um, that's not interesting, it's just the fact, there, there, there are no perfect churches, not one. Even Antioch was not a perfect church. And someone asked Tiger Woods, you know, do you, do you, you know are you striving for perfection? He said, no, I'm, I, you know, I, I never strive for perfection because I know I'll never reach it. But in my golf game, I just try for professional excellence. There would never be a, a perfect church because we are all human, and, and, and humans make up the, the, uh, the church, but there can be a healthy church, and, and there can be churches that are healthy. I've been all around the world. I've been in all kinds of different churches, uh, Western churches, Eastern churches, uh, and, and, and I, I tell you, usually within the first few minutes when I'm in a church, I could tell you if it's healthy or not. You, you, there's a, you, I just know. You know, I, I suppose it's just by, by being there enough times. Um, you can tell. Um, what, what I want to close with today is I want to talk about, the, I want to summarize and talk about what characterized this Antioch church. Even Ken and I were talking about this yesterday, about these lists that Mark Deaver had and all these other people, and about how they're all sort of subjective. And one man that's a little more gifted as a teacher might put a little more emphasis on the importance of teaching, which is important, but the, 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 the point is, he might, sort of the, the balance might be a little bit more toward the teaching, whereas an evangelist, the balance of his list is a little more toward outreach. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because it's subjective. But as I thought more about it today, Ken, as I looked at this, uh, what characterized the Antioch church, and then I compared with some of those lists, I think, I think really, if we want to find a list of what characterized, what, what are the characteristics of a healthy church, it's Antioch. Uh, as some of the, you haven't been with us, but Antioch is the only church uh, that, that's given this kind of time in the scripture, where the leaders are mentioned, where its mission is mentioned. And it may, may, maybe it is because Antioch is the model church. And, and the, that which characterizes Antioch are, are those things that ought to characterize every healthy church. Here, I'm going to give you a list of eight characteristics of this church. First, the Antioch church was a fellowship, in the, in the truest sense of the word, of forgiven sinners. 
a fellowship of forgiven sinners. As we mentioned, Antioch was not only the largest, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, it was a great pagan city. There was a, a temple there to the goddess Daphne, where the people engaged in temple prostitution. It was open, regular. I mean, this was a pagan city. And the reality is, as you know, that the church has always thrived uh, um, most in places where the sin has been the greatest. Wherever sin is abounded, so grace has abounded all the more. Wherever the sin's been the greatest, the forgiven sinners there are the most grateful. And if, if you want to just uh, look back at, the chap- at Luke chapter 7, and can I ask for a few minutes of grace? All right. Look at Luke's. I didn't get up till late. Uh, not this morning. I mean, I didn't get up here till late. Uh, look, look at Luke chapter 7, and, and I'm just going to point out this story to you. You remember um, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 48? Um, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus, uh, asked him, asked Jesus to eat with him. So he went to the house of the Pharisee, and he took his place at the table. And there, there a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was there reclining at the Pharisee's house, she came and brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And she began from behind him washing his feet and weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who, what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, because that was the name of the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. And he said, go ahead, say it. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which one do you think would love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom, for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he asked Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them from her hair with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but, but, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. In Antioch, this was a pagan, ungodly city. And when they were presented with the the, the message of the holiness of God, of the sinfulness of men, and of salvation in Christ, they received this message with great joy. And they were set free. Thus, in Antioch, you had a real fellowship. A real fellowship in love of forgiven sinners. Number two, it was a teaching church. It was a teaching church. And and I'm not going to go into detail because we've hit these, but there are at least two passages that talk about how they continually taught. And then we just mentioned that even after uh, Paul and Barnabas, there were others. They were continually teaching the word of God. Number three, it was a giving church. It was a generous church giving church 
and, and we see that in, in 11, chapter 11, 27 to 30. They, that was just the first record of their giving, but they continued to give. I'm confident of that. Number four, it was a worshiping church. The leaders ministered to the Lord by using their gifts, but as a body, they were committed to worshiping God. Was, this was their pattern. Fifth, it was a fasting church. Fasting, as we mentioned, was a regular part of what they did. Being passionate about bringing glory to God and wanting to know what his will was, they gave themselves regularly to fasting. Number six, it was a praying church. They continually brought everything to the Lord in prayer. Everything was bathed in prayer. Paul said, pray without ceasing. They prayed without ceasing. They were a people of great faith, trusting God for greater things beyond themselves. Not just talking about little things, but asking God to do wonderful, great things that his name would be glorified. A praying church. Number seven, it was a missionary church. The first church to send out missionaries. And literally, the world has never been the same because Antioch took the step of sending out missionary teams all over Asia and Europe because of Antioch. And number eight, it was a theologically minded church. Just How about Acts chapter 15? I mean, they were concerned about the truth. Paul was the greatest teacher of the day, the greatest theologian, and that church understood what sound doctrine was. They were committed to it. They fought for it. They, they made sure that, that they were right on track. Why, why uh, was it? You know, these are the eight characteristics of the Antioch church, and I would submit to you, I think these are the eight characteristics of any healthy church. Why? What makes a church so healthy? It goes back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and we said this from the beginning when we were here. It goes back to Acts 2.42, those four pillars of the church, the four commitments that we need to hold to, to devote ourselves to with all that we have, the word of God, the love of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, and prayer. Right? Acts 2.42, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, which we said is a commitment to the cross and to prayer. Any church that commits themselves, the members that commit themselves to those four pillars, and then as a body, they're committed to those four pillars, is going to be a healthy church, characterized by these same things that characterized Antioch. And a church like that will have impact. Wherever it is in the world, it will have impact because its priorities are God's priorities. And when the church's priorities are God's priorities, then you have a group of people that God is able to use. A church that God is able to use, that the Spirit's able to use. The only difference in that list with, with, with what I sort of summarized as I looked at all those 40 lists plus Mark Deaver's list are some things that are kind of modern. Uh, modern points that we have to make because everything, isn't everything sort of like the swing of a pendulum? It's everything's an action and a reaction. Somebody teaches this, well, well we're not like that. It's on the other side. Every, everything is just this, the reaction. And uh, there's, been, you know, there's been so much man-centered worship that most good lists talk about the importance of God-centered worship. Fine. But this is sort of a modern issue. This wasn't an issue in Antioch. They were centered on God. Another issue is the devotion, a devotion to the family and the training of children in the ways of God. That would be a mark of a healthy church, Absolutely. But they didn't, we didn't need to mention that in Antioch because they were committed to the right things. That's the natural outflow. 
But here, we've got to mention it because we're so far out of whack. So I didn't, I didn't need to get into that, I suppose. Uh, but I had this whole other list of, of what, what, what summarized, the way I summarized. And I looked at my list compared with what I believe are the characteristics of the Antioch church. And those were the only divergent things. In other words, Antioch's the model. Antioch is the model of a healthy church. So I started the weekend on Friday night talking about the Moravians, this incredible small body of believers that impacted the world for Christ in their day and to this day. And I'm going to close with the Moravians. Uh, There's a great missionary leader named George Miley that that wrote a little bit about the Moravians. And he he wrote um, another list uh, of uh, what, what he believes are the reasons they had such... Uh, such a powerful impact. And I'm going to close with this list because I, I, you, you, well, you'll see why. The Moravians uh, shared a heritage of celebration. And I'm going to put it another way. They were worshipers. Even though they had suffered, they had, they had been driven out of their land and thankfully Zinzendorf offered them property to live there. They were, they were not those that wallowed in self-pity or any bitterness, but rather they were people of praise. The Moravians published the first Protestant hymn book 16 years before Luther pounded onto the door of of the Wittenberg Chapel, the 95 Thesis. They were already there. They were committed to worshiping the Lamb. Many of you have heard the famous Moravian uh, motto, to win for the Lamb the rewards of his suffering. That characterized that movement. To win for the Lamb the rewards of his suffering. They were worshipers and committed to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Even John Wesley in 1738 visited the Moravians and was completely struck by their simple yet compelling and, and, uh, devotion to Christ. And they were one of the main reasons that brought him to Christ. The, Mora- the testimony of the Moravians' lives and devotion to Christ was one of the, you, if you would read his testimony, was one of the reasons he came to faith in Christ. In other words, the, the, the Moravian movement, you might say, the, the fruit of the Moravian movement was John Wesley, and John Wesley was one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Just because they were committed to worship. Second, they were gripped by an, in, an, an inner imperative that Christ must be made known among all the peoples of the earth. Thus, they were the first ones to send out missionaries in the modern age. And they continually prayed for them. Do you know that the Moravians set up a 24-hour prayer, prayer chain for their missionaries and for world missions? Number three, they viewed God's global mission as the responsibility of the whole church. They viewed God's global mission as the responsibility of the whole church. That is, the church and not merely the missionaries or what we might say today, mission societies or mission agencies. It was the duty of every person in the church. Missions, God's global mission plan. Everybody owned it individually. This is our duty, God's global mission. It wasn't just one part of the church budget. It wasn't just one Lit one point in the ministries of the church. It was the commitment of everybody in the church. Mission. Number four, they did things together. They had a real community. Many of you have already told me about Lakeside Bible, that this is like your family. And I've seen this. Having, having had the opportunity to be with you for the last few days, I've seen this is a wonderful community. 
Now, not all of you have been here on Friday night and Saturday. Some of you just showed up on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, I know you, you have other things to do. Uh, but I'm telling you, it, you know, and I'm not being judgmental that you weren't there, but I'm telling you, you are missing out of the fellowship of this body if you're not here when the doors are open. You're missing out. You're, you're losing out because this is a wonderful body. This Moravian church was a real body. They enjoyed body life like few other churches had. Number five, they made no distinction between the clergy and the laity. This is no big deal to us because we're Protestants with a long Protestant tradition, but this was a big deal back then. Um, They were brethren. There were no spectators. Every person had a role to play in the church, and every person understood they had a role to play in God's kingdom purpose. It wasn't the pastor and the elders and the assistant. It was everybody. We're all involved in this. If you were a Christian, you were involved. And that's the way it is. If you, because that's, that's the reality. If you are a member, you are a minister. Number six, the business people within their community developed enterprises in order to facilitate the sending of more cross-cultural teams. You catch that? The business people within their community developed enterprises to facilitate the sending of more teams. They were a community of only 600 when they first started sending people out. A community of 600 can only send out so many people because they just don't have the resources. So the business people within there uh, devoted businesses, developed businesses, some that have continued to this day. And their profits were all devoted to the church for the sending of more missionaries. I know a brother in California who uh, has been a businessman, his, his particular business, for about 37 years. He's approaching, approaching retirement age, and he's told me different times before he's thinking about selling the business. But he said, in recent years, I've been thinking, just these recent weeks, months, whatever, he said, I've been thinking, I don't, I don't think I want to sell the business. He only has to work half a day. He's got his employees. It all runs. He said, I've, but rather, I've been thinking, I'm going to keep this business for a long time and just devote more of the profit, more, just, just, just to the Lord's work. You know, what do I, I don't need any more money. I don't, but, but, and if I were to retire, I get my retirement, whatever, what am I going to do? He said, I've thought about maybe going and serving in some mission. He said, but I can't do anything. I can't swing a hammer. I'm not a preacher. But, but as long as I'm here, my needs are met. I can just, this money can just go to mission. And he's motivated that way. Uh, this, the Moravians were committed in that way. And lastly, they were, they were fully committed to prayer, to continual prayer. I mentioned before that they had this 24-hour prayer chain. That 24-hour prayer chain for mission, it wasn't just like for a week or two. It lasted for 100 years. Is that something? Why do you think the Lord blessed the missions, uh, mission efforts of the Moravians? It's simple. Why did he bless the mission effort of Antioch? They were all committed with fasting and prayer when they sent them out. They were all committed as a body, like these Moravians, committed, everyone, everyone within the body committed to God's global mission, God's global purpose. By God's grace, I have a question for you. By God's grace, here we are in 2005, if the Lord should tarry, if for some reason he doesn't come back within our lifetimes, what will, what will, what will, what will be written about Lakeside Bible Church 100 years from now? What would they write about this generation of Lakeside Bible Church? You have the opportunity to make church history and not merely just read about it like we're doing today. You have that opportunity as a body.
but it requires every one of you fully committed to this purpose, to God's global plan. And in fact, this is what it's all about, to stand before the Lord someday and tell him, yes, Lord, I did everything I had. Everything you gave me was all yours. I used my time, my talents, my resources, all for your kingdom. This is what it's all about. Brothers and sisters, you, this, this, and I've told Ken, this has all the marks of an Antioch church, this movement here. But only history will tell. Only in history will we know. You, you know, some churches will be content 50 years from now that someone says they remain faithful. Fine. To me, that's mediocre. Don't settle for mediocrity. You know, in fact, it's a good thing if churches remain faithful for 50 years. That is, that is, that is a success story. But don't settle for that. Don't settle for a mediocre, don't, a mediocre finish. Don't settle for just being another church in Texas. We don't need more churches in Texas. We need some Antioch churches. So my, my prayer for you and my challenge is that you, you take this commitment. You pray, you fast, and you see what God will do in and through you for his glory around the world. Amen.